All right, Shane, thanks so much for coming into the show. We're super excited to have you uh, about your book that came out a couple of years ago, Smart Cuts, uh, really was one of my favorite books that I've read. So really appreciate you coming into the show. Hey, it's my pleasure. And thank you. I'm honored that, that you say that. I, I'm, I'm glad to be here. Yeah, there, there's something um, immediately, and, and, I, and I've checked out your interviews before. There's something about the way you tell stories. And obviously, you've got a uh, journalism background, you've written for Wired and Fast Company and all these major media outlets, but there's something captivating about the anecdotes that you have within the book. You mentioned obviously a lot of famous icons, but there is an underlying message under that as well. And that, that's something that is really hard to do. Um, so really, really enjoy the book. I mean, I'd love to talk to you a little bit about, before we get into the book, Ashley, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about you know, what, what inspired you to write this type of book in the first place. I know you do a lot of journalism around these types of success books, but what, what kind of inspired you to write the book and what was the underlying message that you wanted to include for the people in case they haven't read it before? Yeah, well, there are a few things. Um, I, so, you know, I, I got my start really back in the day doing computer science and, you know, building web apps and, and kind of doing the entrepreneur, the tech entrepreneur thing at kind of a small scale. And then I went to journalism school because I wanted to write about technology companies and science and innovation and the future. And, uh, and then I ended up being inspired by a lot of the things that I was writing about and starting my own company. Um, but I sort of had this itch sort of in the back of my head as, uh, you know, the company, it's been seven years now since we started the company. A couple of years in, uh, I was feeling like there's just so much to learn uh, as an entrepreneur, and we wanted to build the kind of company that I had been writing about, you know, fast-growing company that's changing things, that's, you know, doing good and, uh, and making a big impact. And, uh, and so I kind of went back to writing for, yeah, for like Fast Company and, and some other places about uh, really innovative companies as an excuse to meet great people who had, you know, done this sort of thing that we aspired to do. And so kind of in the course of that, I, you know, started noticing some patterns and, and the book kind of came out of, you know, one, I, I, I like telling stories and, you know, as a journalist, that's a passion of mine. I wanted to tell the stories that you don't know about the successes that you do know, right? So, so people that you know are successful, companies that you know are a big deal. What's the story you don't know about what they did differently? And then I also wanted to tell some stories about people who you should know that have changed industries, changed the world. And, and really the book became about not so much about technology companies and innovation as much as it became about uh, breakthroughs in history. Um, in art and science and entertainment and business. Um, and kind of the prevailing pattern is that anytime you see a leap forward in some industry, it's because someone has played the game that everyone else is playing by different rules. So, you know, there's kind of incremental progress that we make all the time and whatever's going on. But when you see breakthroughs, it's because someone has reassessed or reconsidered or rejected the rules or the assumptions or the conventions of that game, you know, the simple analogy uh, that everyone knows about is uh, the high jump bar in the Olympics and in track and field. Everyone would jump over the high jump bar, sort of leap over it like Superman, um, and uh, and then this one guy started jumping over the bar backwards, kind of land on your neck, and his coach was worried, his mom was worried, 
but he won the Olympics jumping over the high jump bar backwards. And everyone was mad because they're like, that's not how you're supposed to do it. But it wasn't a rule. And it turns out that by the next Olympics, everyone was jumping over the high jump bar backwards because it was just a better way to do it. So this idea of, uh, you know, that is, is kind of a, almost a silly example of what you see in the history of innovation, but also in the history of art and politics. And so smart cuts became a sort of tour of that, of the patterns that clever people do to attack problems from different ways than people have thought of before. And how do you kind of teach yourself to do that? Um, how can you, how, if you, you need to think differently in order to make breakthrough progress, um, how do you get in the mode of thinking differently? Cause that's not a natural thing. Um, so that's what the book became about. And, uh, yeah, and it, it was a lot of fun. It really was an excuse for me because I wanted to learn about how to do these things for our company too. Uh, I was just going to say, cause you, you call this term lateral thinking in the book itself, but I love that you actually embody the examples of the concepts that you write about because you wanted to go up, meet interesting, successful people and entrepreneurs that are building high-tech growth companies. And then you decide to write a book about it and also obviously write for these major media outlets where you can actually pick the brains, uh, it, you know, kind of as a, as a leverage, as you also mentioned, to actually get insights and input into helping you improve your own life and your own businesses. So I, I love that you did that. Well, I think it's all, I, I like the idea, and, and I write, wrote about this too at some length. Uh, I like the idea of mixing the skills and heuristics from disparate disciplines uh, to your advantage. I also like, I guess, combining trips. <laughs> so, speaking, so growing up, you know, my, my dad would never let me take the car anywhere unless I was combining the trip. Like, it's like, yes, you can take the car to go see your friends if you go pick this up from the hardware store. And so I, I don't know if it's a little bit of that, but you know, I, I like the idea. So I like telling stories and I like writing and I like publishing. Um, but I like the idea of using that as an excuse to learn. And, uh, you know, in this case it was specifically an excuse to learn about things that could help my business. So it's like a triple, uh, birds with one stone or whatever the, the analogy is. But yeah, I like doing that. I, I think it's valuable it's not only an excuse, but it's valuable to apply the toolkit, in this case, of a journalist to, uh, you know, to innovation um, in the same way that a lot of innovation happens. And specifically, I mean, even with this lateral thinking thing, a lot of innovation happens because someone applied their toolkit from one industry to another industry, and it turns out that that was just different than what everyone else was doing. Uh, so, I mean, it all kind of flows together. I like, I like the idea of practicing what I'm learning while I'm learning it. I love that. I love that. And I mean, the, the concept of applying a con, uh, you know, proven concept from one industry to another, and a lot, of, a lot of people say that is kind of like a way of hacking creativity. And I think Chase Jarvis talks about that a little bit. So, um, really, really love that you mentioned that as well. I think the the quote that really stood when I was reading your book is that some 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 among us ma managed to build an eBay in the time that it takes to, for the rest of us to build a house, which kind of really exemplifies this idea of hacking the ladder. And I know you've got some examples in the book that kind of describes the this concept of uh, of hacking the ladder. I'm, I'm curious to know, um, just from the some of the concepts that you've learned, I mean, what are the underlying principles that you think makes people, uh, gives people the ability to hack the ladder you mentioned something like ronald reagan who was an actor before and decided to become the president of the united states i mean what are some of these underlying factors you think that the listeners could take away 
um, and, and really directly applied to some of their lives or their businesses? I mean, so there's a few things in there. I mean, the, the president's one is really interesting, especially now with what we saw with the last election. But essentially, yeah. I looked at the career paths of, uh, and this is the very first chapter of the book, career paths of U.S. presidents and looked at successful presidents in terms of uh, you know how historians rank them versus less successful presidents and, and what they have in common and don't. And there's something interesting about how the most successful presidents tend to have job experience in areas other than politics um, and, and actually relatively little experience as elected officials. So Eisenhower being an example of someone who he was never uh, elected to anything before he was president, but he was a war general and a hero and a strategist, and, and he applied those kinds of lessons to the presidency, but also you know, the presidents that were very successful like that. I don't know if it's causation or correlation, um, but these, these same guys that, uh, that were bringing their experience as police chiefs and philanthropists and actors and whatever to the president, they did things differently, but they also, in many cases, tended to be more willing to change their minds than someone like Andrew Johnson, for example, who's one of the worst presidents, that he was in politics for like 35 years before he became president. Mm. And he was very stubborn about doing this, things his way or the highway. And so I don't think that that's, that means that it's necessarily directly tied to political experience or lack of it, because there were plenty of presidents with very little experience that really sucked. Yeah. Um, but the ones that really sucked, what they had in common is they were very stubborn. Mm. And so I, I think kind of like this simple answer to your question, the meta lesson is, is that flexibility and uh, willingness to change your mind and to change your viewpoint is uh, is the thing that makes everything work. Without that, like any of the tactics or techniques to you know apply lateral thinking or you know to uh, think more creatively about whatever you're working on, they don't matter if you're not open to them. There's this concept that I'm writing about now um, as as part of uh, of the next thing that I'm working on called intellectual humility, which is really fascinating to me. It has to do with this, and it's essentially uh, when you ask like a psychologist what it means to be open-minded, turns out that the definition of open-mindedness is kind of fuzzy. Different people have different definitions for, for it, and from a purely sort of scientific uh, perspective, it's tricky, but the closest thing to open-mindedness that is studied and measured is this thing called intellectual humility which essentially is one's willingness to revise their viewpoints, but balancing that with being able to discern when you shouldn't. Hmm. Um, so, uh, which I think that is, like if there was one thing that, if we could wave a magic wand and everyone in the world could have, like it would be that. I think we would get along and make progress uh, a lot better than we do and not fight each other and kill each other and block each other. And um, But also we change our minds when we need to. So, I mean, I think like fun, Fundamentally, that's the thing that underlies all of it. Um, I've definitely lost the the train of thought at this point from your from your question yeah. uh, originally, but uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think the uh, you mentioned politics as one of the examples, but if you look at entrepreneurs, even just kind of coming from our own lane, you look at guys like you know Travis from Uber, or you look at Jeff Bezos or Mark Zuckerberg from Facebook. Like none of these guys actually had an extensive amount of experience of 
working for a competitor or similar company. I mean, these are completely new industries that they've entered, or even Elon Musk in a lot of ways. Um, so I, I, I imagine it, it's really transferable to just about every area of your life is this ability to be flexible, as you mentioned. And and I guess, I mean, I'm curious to know your thoughts. I mean, it seems like a lot of the concepts you talk about in the books, whether it's thinking 10x, hacking the ladder, finding mentors that you would normally, you know, never have the you know, ability to reach out to and build a relationship. I feel like a lot of it is also coming down to having like guts, having having the balls to actually go out and 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 take action in in the planning that you've done. Yeah, so I mean, the thing with uh, you know the pattern that you mentioned, right, with some of these uh, entrepreneur types that they're being very disruptive in industries that they don't necessarily come from. It's not to say that they're not smart and that they have no experience. And they, you know, Jeff Bezos, he started several companies before this, you know, with like middling or or lack of success. Um, but there's a threshold for how intelligent you need to be in order to make any of this happen, and how much you know, social skills and management skills and leadership skills and all of that you need to have to even get into the game. But I do think there is something about a lot of these uh, these kinds of people who who make disruptive companies. They are often their lack of experience in the industry to a point does them a service because they're not entrenched in the way that industry thinks and the assumptions of that industry. At a certain point, if you're running a, you know, a, a company that's all about transportation and logistics, you need people who are experts in transportation and logistics so that you don't screw it up. But, uh, yeah, there's, there's something there to that that I think is, is pretty interesting and it's actually not age related. I don't think it's experience related. I do think it is just that willingness to look at things differently um, when you talk about, you know, the guts, I guess part of that, you know, there is sort of the naivety of youth that you do see a lot of times and you don't know any better. You don't know that you're not supposed to do this. So you go for it. That's definitely a thing that lots of people have, have written about and, and is probably true in general. Um, but I think a big part of, you know, one way that I thought about the book when I was initially kind of pitching it and, and, and formulating the you know the concepts and the patterns behind it was applying an entrepreneur's mindset or a hacker's mindset to anything. Yeah. And really, what an entrepreneur does is they figure something out that other people haven't figured out, and they go for it. And uh, and I think the going for it part is often very scary. It's one of those things too, and I write about this too, where success breeds success. Like if you go for it and uh, you do something scary and it works out, then you're going to be emboldened to do something scary the second time. Whereas if the first time you try something, it doesn't work out, it's going to be harder for you to psychologically be motivated to go for it again. But I think there's, you know, the, uh, one of the things also about being a journalist is you, if you're a reporter, you have to go get people to, who don't necessarily want to talk to you mm-hmm. to talk to you either because they don't have time or they're busy or they're you know, famous or important or whatever, or because you're trying to get them to tell you something that they don't want to talk about. And that is scary, and it requires a lot of persistence and rejection and sort of strategizing how to work your way to get that conversation. Um, and, and to me, that actually was something that helped me as an entrepreneur because you're trying to get to talk to the investors and the partners and the customers and whoever and and uh that requires a lot of initiative that's a very different way of working than being you know being told what you need to go for 
and being given, you know, a set of tools and a sign. You know, it's it's not building a car and you already have all the parts and all the tools. It's going and convincing someone to give you that free parts and convincing someone to work for you to assemble it. And, you know, and that requires taking a leap. Yeah. And that's one of those things, you know, and, and, and I tried to kind of push upon it, but I feel like it is something hard to just teach in a class or teach in a book and have someone immediately change the way they are approaching their life or taking the leap. It, it is definitely hard. It's kind of like teaching someone to become an entrepreneur. You, you, you can't really, some people are, uh, it's it's something some people say there's the whole argument if you're born as an entrepreneur you're born as someone that wants to take this big bull vision or a lot of people can be taught over time but i guess it is something that needs to be developed and trained and 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 continuously refined over a period of time well look so some people have higher thresholds for just like pain thresholds some people have higher thresholds for failure and and whether they will feel bad about themselves if they do. But there's this thing called small wins, which I get at a little bit in the book. Mm. Um, and psychologists talk about uh, if you want to motivate yourself to keep going at a task or at something that's hard or scary or difficult, um, build up to it with small wins where the risk of failure is not catastrophic. Um, you know, it's if you, an example might be if you have social anxiety and uh, going up and talking to people is hard for you. So in or if you want to be an entrepreneur, you have to go up and talk to a lot of people that, you know, it's going to be scary because what if they say no or if they ignore you or whatever. If you're really anxious about that, uh, start small with things that it's not a big deal. Like ask people on the street for the time, you know, and and those little and, you know, no one says no to that. Or if they do, it's not a big deal. It's not you. It's, it's clearly them if they, someone blows you off because you ask them for the time. And then work your way up to more and more difficult conversations. Each time you have a, that little micro win, um, that's incredibly motivating from a psychological perspective. It also, other people seeing you build up that momentum are going to be more likely to want to support you, which is something that I write, write about also, this idea that momentum breeds uh, support. Um, but yeah, but small wins, I think, are there's a lot of people who have overcome a lot of things, uh, you know, in life and not just entrepreneurially. No, for example, uh, in my own life, I was scared of heights my whole life, had terrible, terrible fear of heights. Mm. And, uh, and the way to get over that, I decided one year that I wanted to not be afraid of heights anymore because, you know, it sucks and makes flying horrible. Um, so I, uh, it was during a period when I started getting into urban exploration, which is basically like, exploring hidden parts of cities and abandoned buildings and sewers and things, which I did initially for a story, but part of the excuse um, in getting into it was I wanted to uh, expose myself to more heights situations so that I could get over my fear of heights. And really what it amounts to is go somewhere that's got a railing and it's not that <laughs> high and then go somewhere that's a little higher and a little scarier and like get comfortable, you know, and you stand there and you breathe, but don't, you know, climb to the top of some giant building and stand on like a ledge uh, 100 stories up if you want to get over your fear of heights. Like throwing someone into the deep end of the pool is not going to help them be unafraid of drowning. It's like get them used to the shallow water first. So uh, I, I think that that's, you know, 10 metaphors in one. Um, but I do write about that as it has to do with failure and this idea of fast and failing often and celebrating failure. Uh, because in reality, the, the problem with, with a lot of the advice that we get around like being bold and not being afraid to fail 
is sometimes when you fail, it is catastrophic. Like if you're landing on an aircraft carrier and you fail, that like that is bad. <laughs> uh, you're probably never going to fly a plane again. You're probably dead. Um, other people are probably dead too. So how do you minimize the risk of that failure? You don't want to be afraid to land on that aircraft carrier. But you know the military does a really good job at simulating flights in in a way. You know we built flight simulators and a lot of wanted to uh, help people to get good at the skill and to be unafraid of doing it in the real world. But you start in situations where failure is not catastrophic, it's just feedback. Mm. So building that sort of path to uh, confidence in doing the thing that is risky, that is scary, by uh, by starting small and starting with you know an environment where you, you can't fail. It's mm. really important. I, I read about how comedians do this, how uh, great comedy schools will uh, – will build up, you know, telling jokes in front of people and they don't laugh is very scary. So build up the confidence of people by, you know, starting very low uh, pressure in these situations where they have them do these comedy skits and then they work their way up slowly and they test the jokes until finally by the time you're on stage in front of a real crowd, you know that they're going to laugh and you know it's going to be okay and uh, and the confidence is also there in case they don't laugh. So I, I think that that is something really important regardless of, whatever it is you're working on or trying to do. Absolutely. And I think the first impression that someone might get, they read Hacking the Ladder or Shorten or Smart Cuts, and they may think that you're kind of just going into the deep end of the pool and and that you're just going from, you know, watching a comedy video or trying to figure out a tactic and then all of a sudden selling out Madison Square Garden. But that's not the case at all. You're saying even Michelle Fan that you're mentioning, she had 53 videos of makeup tutorials that never really were viral or never really did any super damage to uh, you know, to the YouTube world until she had that Lady Gaga video, the 54th one. But those 53 videos was kind of way, uh, I guess it, it kind of touches in a couple of things where you it was she leverages a platform, she had the momentum and she got that rapid feedback. Um, so I'm really glad you mentioned that because I, I don't want people to get the wrong impression that the book is about just taking the shortcut, uh, but it's, it's, there's, there's, there's these preparation steps beforehand that that you need to do um i yeah. also yeah go ahead oh sorry i one of the things that occurred to me at some point partway through writing the book and researching is you know i initially my perspective was wow there are some people that they just do things so much faster and they avoid like all like the bs that you know is sort of entrenched and, and it's great but when you peel back uh, you know, these people who do make breakthroughs in their own lives and careers or in their industry or in the world or whatever it is, uh, you realize and I realize that the overnight success thing is such a myth. Mm. Anything that's actually truly an overnight success does not seem to last, um, that there's always years of potential energy being built up. And Michelle Fon is a really great example of this. You know, she became very famous instantly, it seemed. But she had been, yeah, she'd made all those videos. And also since she was a little girl, she had been watching Bob Ross paint and, and she was she was copying what he did for, you know, 20 years as a kid until she was, you know, in her 20s uh, doing that same thing that she ended up doing for YouTube. And, uh, you know, and, and whether it's in the same vein as that or, or people are applying something they've spent years and years on to another industry, uh, it's it's impossible to find an example of someone who has made a breakthrough and appeared to be very successful that hasn't been years in the making of working very smart 
I think, you know, working hard versus working smart. And I think, you know, I, I almost regret the title smart cuts. It was deliberate because it's not shortcuts because buildings fall down when the architects take shortcuts, right. but finding smarter ways to do things better is important. But the caveat is it doesn't mean that you're not putting in the mental effort that actually, you know, takes a while, uh, more time than people think. And I think that's actually really important. Uh, this is a little bit off topic, but what were some of the other options that you had of calling the book itself? Oh, geez. <laughs> uh, I can't even, I mean, there were a lot of like really boring ones, <laughs> but, uh, like the smarter way and the smarter path and, uh, you know, things like that, that, that were more boring. You know, the thing that was actually interesting about coming up with the title, the reason that we ended up going with this title is I did what a lot of authors do, which is like split test titles, like run ads, uh, you know, for different titles and ask people in person which titles they, they like. And what I did with this is I, I narrowed down to a couple or three and I went around and I told a whole bunch of people, like I'm considering these titles, what do you think? And I get the reactions and kind of didn't necessarily like care what they said, but I, I made a list of all these people that I, I told the titles and asked them for feedback. And then two to three weeks later, I hit all of them back up and said, hey, do you remember what the titles I was considering? Uh, have you thought about it anymore? Like, which ones do you like or which ones do you remember? And universally, people remembered Smart Cuts mm. and did not necessarily remember the other ones. And so uh, that was how we decided. We're like, well, it doesn't matter if people like or dislike this title more than the others. They remember this title more. So that was uh, was the consideration, which is itself, I think, a bit of a, a different approach to that question. I agree. And I, I really like the, the title itself. So I think, uh, I don't know, I was curious to know what the other options were, because I was like, I really like smart cards. So uh, I guess I you're the worst critic of yourself, I guess, when you're trying to write the best book possible. Exactly. <laughs> so going back to the concept of Michelle Fan and the other examples that you shared in the book about the idea of failing fast and, and preparing. Um, and at the same time, trying to find all of these different smart cuts that they can do to to leverage and to gain momentum. I'm curious to know, I don't think this is really touched upon into the book, but a lot of times people go through years or sometimes even months of testing out something and there's this constant debate or dilemma of whether they should quit or persist in either in a larger macro scale, whether it's quitting their business and deciding to go get a job, or it could be working on a concept within the business itself and trying to see if they can, and I hate this word, like pivoting to a, a different concept. So Michelle Fan took 53 videos. I don't know how often she was putting out the videos. Could have been years. Um, and she could have quit at any time moment, right? She could have quit at the 50th video or the 51st video. So um, I'm curious to know from your perspective and all the people that you've interviewed, you know, what are, what someone's, what are, what's your take in terms of whether you should know when to quit or when to persist, given the concept of being trying to find rapid feedback and, and iterations on all that stuff? It's a really excellent question. The thing that, I mean, my initial impulse for how I would answer that is that it's a little bit different when it comes to entertainment um, and problem solving. Mm -hmm. And Michelle is, uh, is kind of in both categories. You know, her, her videos, a lot of it is entertainment, but it is providing also like a service that's tutorials and um, you know, uh, beauty tutorials and which it has an element of problem solving. It's certainly very clever. Um, but there's, I think what like the distinction that is not made enough 
for people who are pursuing something and they, you know, they want to build something or they have an idea, especially entrepreneurs or entrepreneurs, right, or inventors, um, people who are working on, they're like, I, I want to make this breakthrough. Um, often, the distinction between the problem and the solution being the thing you're working on um, is is not made. So, what I mean by that is you have an idea for something for a business and you're working on it and everything is that you try, everything that you iterate and pivot and, you know, cycle through and work on is in the context of your idea, not in the context of solving the problem. That makes sense. So, uh, what an example might be Edison and the light bulb, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Edison had his factory full of, you know, dozens of people testing, uh, materials to make a light bulb. If you start, if he was like, I'm going to make a light bulb and, uh, and until I figure it out, there might not be a solution to making a light bulb. Or if he he'd said that it has to look like this because this is my brilliant idea, you might not be able to make it work. But if the problem is providing an ongoing steady source of light, that's different, right? Mm. right? So it's sort of stripping away the assumption of how the problem needs to be solved. Um, and I think... If there's a problem that is important enough, then when should you quit is is really just a function of kind of your mental health, I think, <laughs> your appetite, how much you care about that problem. Because if the problem is important enough and if it's real enough, then you should be looking at it uh, divorced from what where the solution comes from. I, I think a lot of uh, tech companies have this problem where they, they'll say, you know, here's this problem that we're trying to solve. And the company has to be a software as a service company mm. because get high margins, you know, for investors, and, and that's fine as a parameter. But it might be that that's not the kind of business model that's going to help that's going to solve this problem. So you're going to work on it, and work on it, and work on it. And no one subscribes to your software uh, when it turns out that, that there's a different solution. Um, the problem is still real, I guess, is what I'm say, saying. Right. Uh, being married to the solution or some subset of solutions or some uh, paradigm that you have is the thing that uh, that is tough. So, you know, with Michelle, it's interesting because she just really was passionate about teaching. And, uh, and you know, she did try a lot of different things. She was experimenting a lot. Like, say there was no, there would never be any appetite for uh, YouTube makeup tutorials, like the ones that she ended up uh, getting famous for. Uh, say that the world just didn't want those ever. How long would it take her to figure that out? I don't know, but uh, she had indications all along the way that the content she was doing was good um, that kept her going. And, and there were small wins along the way that kept her mo motivated. Um, but at a certain point, you should give up. I think, yeah, I think if she was like, it has to look like this, mm. and then she just kept going and going and going, that's the definition of insanity. Um, but, you know, I... I I'm trying to recall from my interviews with her. I don't think that she framed it so much as this is a problem to solve. I think she framed it more as I want to. Well, actually, no. She did talk about how she was doing this because she wanted to help her friends. She wanted to help other girls, you know, uh, find clever makeup tricks because that was something that was a need or or a want at least. Um, so you know, I, I take that back. Like she was looking at it in the context of like this is something people want. Mm. Um, but the manner for doing it, you know, really, she she ripped off Bob Ross, you know, admittedly, um, because she saw that that was a really good way to get 
people who wanted to learn to paint to, to learn to paint. So she had some evidence from that other kind of industry uh, to do it. Um, but I, I really do think that too often, and, and myself included, we start, you know, we get this flash of brilliance or we notice that there's a, a problem and, and the idea that we come up with where our bias is towards that being the way that, you know, we anchor on that that sort of initial idea that we have. Mm-hmm. And, and that's where the intellectual humility revise our viewpoint on anything mm. um, that has to do with it. And then, you know, the, the thing is, is if the problem turns out to be moot or not a real problem, then then you as soon as you find that out, that is the point when you should quit. Yeah, and it seems like, and, and I think going back to the point of what you said about a lot of these people had a big vision to start with. It wasn't just for Michelle Fine. It wasn't just about creating beauty makeup tutorials or you know being admin about YouTube. I think she even says now that she has no real like incredible loyalty to YouTube. She wants to go wherever the media lets her reach her audience because her bigger message is she wants to make girls or other people in general feel better about themselves. So it seems like there is this high level big vision and they're flexible around how they spread their message and how they can actually re- get there at, at the end. It, it is this bigger high-level vision that a lot of entrepreneurs and a lot of thought leaders seem to seem to have. Uh, is that is that kind of what the interview was about as well? I think that's a perfect way to frame it, mm-hmm. right? Like her motivation was abstracted away from kind of the what she was doing mm. you know another example that i write about in the book that's sort of a well-known one is uh spacex right the space company that elon musk started and their mission is to make human life multi-planetary it's basically like to make it so that earth, if earth gets destroyed that humans survive right like at the end of the day that's their mission they do not care what the rockets have to look like or even if they have to look like rockets or be rockets um, you know, Mars is the closest planet to do that. So their mission now is to go to Mars and colonize Mars. Um, but the method, they do not care. You know, they've come up with some pretty smart stuff, but if they have to pivot, they don't care because they're not, they're attached to, you know, that bigger problem, which is by the way, like one of the most badass problems to be solving, <laughs> you know, and, and I think that makes it a lot easier to, uh, you know, to, to, accomplish it because there's no ego involved in like well we made this wrong we spent so much time and like we got to use this one and what if we could just use you know what we have like no that's not a factor then you can be so much more objective there's actually and i know people who've worked at, at spacex who have seen the frustration of people who you know their colleagues who they work on something for nine months and then you know, Elon Musk or, or some, one of his lieutenants says, okay, we're not doing that anymore. And like nine months of work is down the drain Oof. and like, it's gotta be very frustrating, but in the context of like, Hey, that actually doesn't matter anymore. Uh, being willing to let that go. That's what makes a company like that, uh, able to, uh, to be this groundbreaking thing that a lot of other companies that are married to their old way of doing things uh, can't do. Right. It, it, I guess it's about having that golden star, no matter what happens mm-hmm. to to follow at all times i love that um and that's it's not part of the start so a lot of vision and mission statements and all that they sort of prescribe the how um i think that's the danger don't don't prescribe the how because uh, mm. that that should change and and i mean that's what this whole flexibility and lateral thinking is all about gotcha gotcha 
Um, I did want to touch a little bit about mentorship. And I think, I think we have time to touch on it a little bit. I know you mentioned that, uh, and quote me if I'm wrong, but I think you talk a little bit about how, why informal mentorships or informal relationships with masters or people that are 10, 20 years ahead of you is much more powerful than someone that, uh, that you have a formal relationship with. And I think so many people get this wrong when they're trying to reach out and find a mentor or, cause I think finding a mentor, all that stuff is great. And, and, and it's people advise you to find a mentor, but they don't really show you how to do it. And I'm really curious to know your take on why informal mentorships are uh, more important than, or more beneficial that you've seen than formal mentorships. And personally, I'd love to know who's a mentor of yours and how you informally approach that and build that relationship. I think a lot of people can benefit from that. Oh yeah. Um, so, I mean, the way it connects, right? The mentorship thing was really interesting to me because it's a pattern you see in, uh, you know, great leaders of companies, people who've made breakthroughs in all sorts of industries. They often, uh, almost always, have some sort of a mentor figure in their life. Uh, that you know, even Steve Jobs, right? Like, had a coach, like a, uh, that was you know his business mentor and coach. And uh, you know, it helps you to accelerate uh, your progress to have someone who's been there before. I think there's a you know, there's a conclusion that I, I came to in the book, and then there's kind of my secondary conclusion now, having thought about it a lot since then. Um, but in the book, I go through the research, basically just like scientific research and, you know, uh, research from Harvard Business Review that basically shows that in when you have a formal mentorship program uh, inside of a company, an organization, or school of any kind where you get matched with someone uh, who is more experienced than you that's going to help you out, uh, the you know, the relation that those actually do not have a meaningful impact on someone's future career earnings and their like all the various measures of success in air quotes that they use to, to measure this in the study. Uh, there's not any long term difference between someone who's kind of on their own and someone who has a formal mentor at some point in an organization, which, you know, that's odd, but it's basically no different than just having a teacher or taking a class or doing whatever because. The mentor is there to help you learn a skill. Um, but the research showed that mentorship relationships that are informal, so they, they happen or well, not even informal necessarily, but they happen organically where like you build the relationship with the person who becomes your mentor. They have a significant impact on future earnings and career trajectory and all of those things. And the reason is because uh, there's a few reasons, but one, uh, the main one that I I write about the book in the book is that a mentor that actually cares about you as a person and that you've built a real organic relationship with is there for your journey, not just for your skill acquisition mm. and the kind of mentor that can help you with the sort of the holistic picture is uh, much more powerful because all these things are connected and it connects to the lateral thinking thing too, that just learning how to, you know, karate kid, just learning how to do karate is not as important as learning the life lessons associated with it. Um, and, and in terms of uh, being able to be you know, successful. Uh, and so that's where the informal organic mentorship relationships just statistically yield better results. In thinking about it uh, afterwards, I actually think that there's, there's some other factors as, at play as well, and one of them is simply the time spent. Um, you know, Organic mentorship relationships, they just last long. You have that person in your life for a lot longer time, which I think makes a big difference. 
Um, but I think also the thing, and I guess I, I did sort of say, but it's become more clear to me uh, in recent last couple of years, I guess, or the last year, is that a, a mentor who is there for you as a person first and for your journey and is that sort of organic, not just teaching you how to do karate kind of mentor, um, they are not uh, – like you get out of the cognitive entrenchment of like we're only working within the realm of this, you know, formal uh, school of thought or industry. So it's the mentor themselves actually can uh, can see the holistic picture and and use a little bit more lateral thinking. I don't know if that makes sense um, the way that I'm I'm describing it, uh, but it, it the pieces that you get from outside of just the one thing one skill you're trying to learn with the mentor. Uh, from someone who has experience and who cares uh, and incorporating those into your life, those add up to more than, than you get if it's just a, a teacher, essentially. Sure, um, yeah, it totally makes sense. Um, is there a tactical example maybe that you can share for your own personal life or maybe someone that you've interviewed that distinguishes approaching someone that's 10 to 20 years ahead of you on an informal basis versus a formal basis? I mean, is it kind of like, asking for a coffee versus let's go for, let's go for drinks or I mean, what's, what's kind of the distinguishing that you found and what's kind of some of the tactical approaches that someone can take away on, on building more informal relationships? Yeah. So the person who I owe the most, I think from a mentorship standpoint in my entrepreneurial journey is a guy named Dave Lerner, who is, uh, when I was a student at Columbia journalism school, I, uh, and I was working on, you know, some tech projects on the side, like it always had been, and I had some interesting things that were going on, and I wanted help, sort of, understanding like how entrepreneurs, you know, took products to market and how they did their thing. In part because I was writing about it, I wanted to understand better, and in part because I was working on stuff of my own. So I found uh, at Columbia there was a guy in their tech transfer office, which is uh, basically when something gets invented in a laboratory at the university. And the university wants to take it to market and turn it into something commercial. Then this guy in his office, their job was to do that, to, to package up the thing that was invented in the medical lab and sell it to someone. Um, and uh, and I had I was poking around and I found this on the school website. And uh, you know somewhere on there, there was something about office hours for like entrepreneurial office hours. So, like on the side, uh, you know I help. Uh, talk to people about their startup companies or something like that. I can't remember if that's even what it was, but that was the impression that I got is that if I went to him, I could get that advice. Um, and so I emailed him and I said, Hey, I'm at the journalism school, not any of the places where, you know, you're doing your work, but uh, I have these questions. I would love your advice on the stuff that I'm building. And so I went to his office and I think part of it is just the nature of who this guy is, but I took the initiative. I was not matched up with him. Right. Um, I emailed him and he was like, yeah, sure. Come by the office, come by his office. And he was like, okay, so, uh, this is not official office hours. So like, you know, I'm gonna close the door so no one sees. Uh, so I'm supposed to be working on other stuff right now. Um, but he's like, "Come on in, come on in." And then you know, we talked, and then he got up on the whiteboard and was drawing stuff, and we we clicked like personality-wise. We just had a really great jam session. And then normally, when you know, in this kind of meeting, that might normally be like, "Okay, thanks," you know, like let me know if I can help further, or whatever. Send me an email. Let me know how it's going sometime, or or even just like, "Thanks, bye." Um, it turned into a friendship. And, and so we would meet to talk about, to follow up on sort of the things that I'm doing, but he also, and I think this is really cool, and to his credit, 
he would come to me and ask me what I think of things, mm. uh, you know, that, that he's being pitched or that he's seeing and, uh, which was really cool. And, and, you know, he invited me to some events out outside of school and, and it turned into a friendship where, you know, really it's him helping me, but, but he treated me in, in this great way of respect and, and also, and so, and then, you know, years down the road, it's like when, you know, he and his wife have their first kid, like, you know, like I'm like there for that, not there when they're having the kid, but it's like, that's, that's something that is important in his life that I, you know, am asking about and I'm like bringing them a gift and like that sort of thing that, uh, that's really cool. And so now when I see him, you know, his kid is like six years old. So I'm always like, how's Jack? Like every time we hang out and, mm. and it's crazy to see that, but it's like, we both kind of have had that journey. Um, and so the side benefit of all this is he not only gave me advice on starting a startup and starting companies, but he's given me career advice. I've seen what he's gone through in his career. He's also like this chess master. So he has these great like chess metaphors and like none <laughs> that are outside of, sort of my realm have been really useful. But then also, you know, he invests. And so whenever we were raising money for our company, he was the first person that really committed to investing and helped us to get other investors and, uh, you know, he and I are catching up, I think, next week because uh, it's been a little bit um, just to talk about life. And so it's, you know, the relationship becomes a lot more multifaceted, uh, which is really cool. And I don't know what advice uh, is out of that other than um, finding a mentor that you, you know, or some that person with experience who's the mentor figure that you click with mm. is more important than finding someone who just has like the perfect resume um, and also there is this element of, uh, and, and I write about this a, a little bit in the book, this element of it's not, it shouldn't be like a vampire relationship. Like you're feeding off of the mentor and like getting them to just download like their knowledge and to hook you up, but you're helping them or providing value in their life or it's fun for them because you're being great to them. I think that's a really important aspect of it. Yeah. And I think there's a lot of, and I love the idea of like, just when you're thinking about approaching someone, it's not just about their resume. Uh, and I think there's a lot of advice about how to actually get into the door and, you know, good portion of people that understand how to send emails correctly and how to add value first. I think people can get into the door in most cases, as long as it's not, you know, a major superstar. I'm curious to know if for your specific situation after that first meeting, because this is when a lot of people get stuck is they have that first meeting and it, it goes well, let's say, or goes decent. How, what, what was the first approach and step that you took? Did you reach out to him a week later asking for coffee again? Uh, I think a lot of people get stuck there, like after that initial first meeting, how to build and grow that relationship and, and foster it. Curious to know, uh, and this is super deep in the weeds, but I think a lot of people can get a lot of insights from what you've done personally did. Yeah, I you know, I ought to look up in my email history kind of how that thread uh, continued. Uh, what I want to say, though, is that so I do a lot of coffee meetings with people who, you know, want advice or, or whatever. And I've asked for those kinds of meetings too. And, uh, you know, there has to be a reason for a follow-up that makes sense for both parties. So it makes sense for the person that's asking, uh, you know, to continue to have like follow-up meetings and to just get, you know, free advice and all of that. Um, but what strikes me about my first meeting with, uh, with Dave was that it was so much fun that he got, value out of it that he was interested by the end of the meeting he wanted to uh to know what happened he wanted to follow up um which i think is, is really cool and there's been 
So when I've had random people reach out to me for coffee, and I'm not like, I shouldn't be anyone's mentor. <laughs> <laughs> Why not? <laughs> but uh, when I've had people reach out for me to me for coffee, you know, first of all, there is like an approach that works better than, than others, and there's plenty of advice on the internet, internet about that. But some people you meet with, and uh, and it's fine, and you give the advice, and sometimes it's like kind of like not that fun, and sometimes it's just fine, and you're you know happy to help, and that feels good, and sometimes whatever they're working on just is a perfect match for your interests or they're such a fascinating person and you know so delightful that you want to know what happens next and there's a few people that I can think of off the top of my head that that's uh that's happened you know so today I actually I took I don't do these as much anymore there are a couple of ladies who have a startup here in New York that they came by the office because they wanted some advice we had a great conversation I gave some advice and half of it was probably bad advice um, we had a great conversation, and they went away, and, and I was like, let me know how it goes. But it, I think on both sides, it's not like we're best friends or like there's much interest in that mm. versus two years ago, uh, there was a, another entrepreneur that uh, that I can think of in particular that she came to me wanting the exact same kind of advice. I think it's a pretty similar conversation. But in the course of it, uh, it was like one of those things where you're both kind of like excited to be talking and you're like making all these like stupid hand motions and like getting all excited and and, you're, and by then I was like man I, I want to introduce you to this this friend and like this buddy of mine like their kid is going to love this app and you know I wish I had money to invest and also like yeah let's jam again uh you know so it's like some people there's just that enthusiasm factor and I think if if that doesn't happen in that first meeting I guess the question is like how do you be that charming that interesting. Probably a lot of it has to do with whether it's a fit for their interests or their time in the the life, and part of its personality. But without that, I think forcing that next meeting is you know, like, don't. <laughs> just it's not going to happen. I think it's like with any kind of relationship. Just because someone is a good person doesn't mean they're going to be your best friend. That you're going to click on that level. Um, and you know, who can say like what exactly that formula is? I would say talking to a lot of people, but trying to make it worth their while. And then when it is like an amazing conversation and you do click, you know, seizing on that and following up on that, but don't do it by asking like, Hey, can we meet once again? And I take an hour of your time. Right. Um, you know, I, I think that's uh, that's a big part of it. Yeah. I asked yeah. that question just cause it's, it's, it's something that I'm curious about when, when people reach out to me or even when I reach out to people at the end of the day, it's, it's really what you, what you mentioned, which is it's an informal relationship. So there's no real formula of what makes you, uh, you know, attracted or someone, someone that you really want to help out. Uh, it's kind of like how you make friends. There's some stuff that you have in common with, and there's a level of enthusiasm, and you just kind of click. So I guess it's at the end of the day, it's just a genuine relationship that you want to be building to have that relationship at the end, right? Yeah, and I think the secret is that there's no hack for that kind of relationship. Mm. Um, you know, the the hack so to speak, that I talk about in the mentorship thing is that you can, if you're trying to learn from someone who's really skilled and the best at something, you don't need to do that in person, right? Like you can learn from what they've written, what they've said, what they've talked about. You can watch the videos of them in action and, you know, obsess over the best in the world. If you want to learn a skill from a mentor, that's the way to do it. If you want that mentorship guidance on your journey, then it's got to be organic and natural and, uh, and a right fit for everyone. And that takes time. Gotcha. Gotcha. And, and last point, Shane, that I want to clear up on, uh, you meant, you wrote an article recently, or, or I believe a couple of weeks ago on LinkedIn, it says worst days through my life. And it, it talks a lot, you know, a lot about 
a few years ago about having success on the outside. Uh, you were interviewing a billionaire. I think it was Peter Thiel. Um, yeah. But, you know, feeling miserable on the inside. And obviously a lot of entrepreneurs go through this syndrome. Um, curious to know when you were interviewing people for smart cuts or people that you've interviewed, I mean, how do they generally deal with that? Do you, have you dug into that kind of topic and ultimately, you know, how, how do you personally deal with loneliness or doubt and the ups and downs of building a company and everything that you've gone through? So I haven't really pursued from a journalistic standpoint that question, but I have had a lot of conversations about this and especially when I wrote that article so that that article was part of the the campaign for Sheryl Sandberg and Adam Grant's book uh, option B which is about resilience and getting through the hard times um, and uh, which is an amazing book I mean that that book itself I think is the answer to, to a lot of, of this question um, but uh, but when I wrote that post it it went way more viral than I hoped because it was kind of uh, Hard to write about, you know, your personal stuff like that. Um, but a lot of people reached out, including people that I knew. And it just goes to show that if you share your story, like that's powerful, and and more people can relate than you think. A lot of people reached out talking about um, the times when, or either stuff that they're going through now, which sucks, or um, you know, the times when they felt like an imposter too. When on the outside, everyone's cheering for you and and saying like, "Wow, you're so successful," but on the inside, there are things that are wrong, and like. That's really hard. I, I think you know the thing that I learned is that it's more universal than you think, um, and uh, and also that it sucks and it's gonna suck, um, but that people are there for you. I mean, that was the lesson of the post for me is that once you open up and you start talking about it and you get ego aside or your fear or whatever it is um, out of there, and then you start talking to people and asking for help or you know letting being vulnerable then you're, you'll be amazed how much love there is in the world and, and how much support you'll get. Um, it, you know, it's, it's very humbling for me. I, I, I guess like, you know, talking about like how to cope with that sort of thing. Uh, you know, it's tough. I, I think honestly the best advice I could give is you can't do it alone. Um, and uh, dealing with loneliness, the cure for loneliness is uh, the easiest cure is, uh, you know, is love in your life. Right. And, uh, and other people, and, uh, you shouldn't necessarily define like exactly what that looks like, or you might be, you know, very disappointed. Um, you know, the kind of the how, uh, there is, I think, you know, an element of self-confidence and, and I'm no expert on this to be able to be happy when you're alone, um, and to get through stuff on your own. Cause ultimately a lot of stuff we do, you know, face inside our own heads. Um, but I think in general for the thing that I wrote about of, you know, outside success is not everything and we're all going through things. The best thing to do is to open up to people. And, and when you do share your story and when you are vulnerable, people will be vulnerable back. And it's a great way to make people like you. It turns out is to, to be a human being that has flaws. Um, and, uh, so yeah, I mean that, that's, that's what I learned. I, it's, I was surprised some of the people that emailed me who I really look up to who've been at their careers for a long time, um, extremely successful and, uh, and the stories that they shared to kind of make me feel better. But like, Hey, there was the time when, you know, uh, someone who I really respect, like, Hey, there was the time when I thought about killing myself because, uh, you know, things behind the scenes were going so badly, even though I had this amazing company and this amazing family and like everyone thought I it's amazing. 
And like, you know, that's not a failing on his part. That's human nature and that's natural. And like, you know, it's, it's nice to be able to talk about that with people who make you realize that that is not the option, the only option that you have, you know, when things are hard. And, uh, yeah, anyway, I, I, I do think that it's important for us to open up to each other, to find people who can be there for us and to be there for other people so that when you need it, uh, you're there too. But even just telling strangers what you're going through mm-hmm. surprisingly, uh, is a great way to learn that there's love out there and there's people who are going through what you're going through. And is that the similar strategy that you've seen other people use and that you use yourself, which is really just not hiding it and opening up and sharing your struggles and vulnerabilities with, with people that are around you and and even strangers. Is that still a tactic that what is that tactic? But yeah, sometimes it's inappropriate, right? Like it depends on the setting. Um, but being vulnerable is extremely powerful. So yes. And you know, Sometimes being vulnerable, it's easier to be vulnerable with someone you don't know as well uh, than it is to someone you do know as well. Uh, and sometimes it's the reverse. Sometimes you have people in your life that you're close enough to that, like, it's scary, but you should be vulnerable because they're the best person to help. But sometimes, you know, I, I don't know if this has ever happened to you when you meet, like, a random stranger and you get into a deep conversation about life. That can be delightful and really liberating mm. uh, to be able to do that. So I don't know, maybe the tactic, if you want a tactic, is go on chat roulette when you're sad and talk to like <laughs> uh, But, uh, or write anonymously. Uh, I do this a lot where I will write anonymously on like secret uh, public blogs, um, kind of like the old live journal thing. Like that that helps. Yeah. And, you know, tag it with a million things until so random people comment and, and relate to you. Um, or, I mean... You know, just be vulnerable in general when things are not so bad. Be honest about your feelings and be more candid in general about your opinions and and your emotions. That is really helpful because those become small wins that make it uh, easier for you to open up when it's uh, more dire. Absolutely. I think what I I used to do and even what I still do is I would just travel to random places and uh, whenever I'm there, you know that a lot of the people you meet, you're either never going to meet again, or these are people that don't know your backstory. You kind of feel like you're starting from a blank slate, and you, it gives you kind of the option to not have this previous limiting beliefs, and and it really allows you to open up. So that's that's something that um, ha- has worked for me. But Shane, thank you so much for taking the time uh, to speak with us and being open with you know the ups and downs of you know what you're going through and what other people that you've learned from have been through and ultimately learning uh teaching us some of the lessons that you've taken away from smart smart cuts i i've read it and and listened to it in audiobook like two three times already so i highly recommend everyone check it out we'll link it all in the links below um where can people find you and we'll link all that up and um any last takeaways or lessons for people listening to the show uh so anything that has to do with me is just my website shanesnow.com um, there's a lot of stuff there that's kind of like ancillary stuff or some of the things that we've talked about. Um, yeah, no, this is great. I'm, I'm extremely flattered and, uh, and it is my absolute pleasure and honor to, to be talking about this and on the show. And, uh, thank you so much. 
Thanks for making it all the way to the end of the show. Hope you really enjoyed our guest today and that you took one thing valuable from our conversation. If you haven't already, I would love it if you could leave a quick rating or review on whichever network you're listening to the show and share this episode with one friend if you found it valuable. And if it's something that a friend, a family member, or just someone that you care about could find a little bit of insight from what you learned today. All right. Ciao.